Nian Cheng was born in 1915 in Beijing, China. And she studied at the famous Yenqing University. It's no more, but at that time it was the most famous university in China. And then she went on to the London School of Economics. She met her husband, Kang Cheng, there. They had one daughter that they named Mei Ping. And they both became Christians during their time studying in London. This is the early 1930s. Kang got a job with the Chinese government and they returned to China. And then because of his good English, uh, he ends up getting a job with the Shell Oil Company that had opened an office there in Shanghai. Uh, but he died of cancer after only a few years. So 1957, he dies. At that point, uh, Shell hired Nian uh, to take her husband's place, basically. It was a good job for her. She was certainly grieving the loss of her husband, uh, but she was well provided for, and the da her daughter was the delight of her life. In the book that she would later write called Life and Death in Shanghai, Nian does a beautiful job of describing her home in the French concession of Shanghai. It's a place not far from where Megan and I live uh, it kind of preserves this European architecture. There's a, a stone kind of gate or, that you enter into a courtyard and then a two-story uh, kind of European-style home. Uh, she describes life there with their live-in cook and, and nanny, their ai. Uh, she describes her love of music, her record collection. She had an extensive porcelain collection that she would share with the Shanghai Museum later on. And she describes in exquisite detail the events of 1966 when Mao launched the great proletariat cultural revolution. Uh, you and I probably have a real hard time understanding the kind of upheaval that can come upon a nation when the government tries to turn the citizens against one another, when, when neighbor is turned against neighbor. I grew up in Northern Virginia here. Uh, as best as I can remember, I've always had wonderful neighbors. I've never been suspicious of my neighbors in any way. Uh, in the Cultural Revolution, Mao was trying to gain more power for himself. Uh, he was mobilizing the youth of the country, trying to get them to overthrow the establishment. So high school and college students were recruited to become Red Guards. They would put on bandanas and armbands with slogans. Uh, and they would basically become mobs going through the city looking for capitalist sympathizers, attacking landlords or anybody uh, of the old guard. Now for Nian Chung, this culminates in a day when 30 to 40 high school students, uh, I think basically began pounding on her door, ringing her doorbell incessantly until she opened up and let them in. Uh, her home was ransacked. Her possessions were smashed. She was beaten. Uh, this happened a number of times over the following weeks. Uh, and then finally, a month later, she was dragged away to what was called during the Cultural Revolution a struggle session. Uh, this is where you'd, be, you'd have a dunce cap put on your head, uh, and your neighbors were supposed to gather around you and denounce you for your crimes. Uh, this is what was done to her, and she was taken from there uh, to prison where she would spend the next six and a half years of her life. Uh, much, much of her book covers uh, how she survived the appalling conditions at the number one detention house in Shanghai. Daily interrogations designed to break her spirit, get her to confess her crimes. She would never do that. 
She would stay in prison for, for six and a half years, as I said. Uh, on March 27, 1973, they finally decided uh, that she was repentant enough. She was being re released, they said, because of an improvement in her way of thinking and her repentance. But they wanted her to sign a statement to that effect. And she said, I'm not doing it. I'm not leaving this place until you give me something that says that I'm innocent. Uh, and the, her interrogator told her, the number one detention house is not an old people's home. You can't stay here all your life. I've never had a prisoner refusing to leave the detention house before. You must be out of your mind. And so they pushed her out the front door. Now when she arrives home, she heartbreakingly finds out that the Red Guards had murdered her 20-year-old daughter while she was in prison. Uh, eventually she made it out of China and she moved right here. Uh, she moved here in 1980 and lived in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. until 2009 when she died at the age of 94. There are a lot of things that we can learn from a heroic woman uh, like that. But one of the enduring images for me is how her life changed overnight. Her life turned on a dime. She went from days of productive and fulfilling work. She liked to an gather antiques and and she had this, these hobbies. She, her daughter was the, the delight of her life. She was looking forward to her daughter's career. She was an active member of a church and growing as a Christian. And then all of a sudden, in a moment, it's changed. It's undone. It's reversed. And her life would never be the same. Now, on one level, I would imagine that a story like Nian Chung seems far from your life and from my life, perhaps. We, we don't live in a time of political turmoil quite like the Cultural Revolution in 1960s China. Uh, and for that reason, perhaps ex extreme examples like hers can kind of roll off of our back and we can dismiss them easily. But one of the things that all of us can attest to on some level is how quickly life can change. We can all relate to the idea of a reversal, of things going well and seeming good and then all of a sudden, things change. Things go from good to bad. Things go from straightforward to confusing. Even our own emotions reverse themselves sometimes from hopeful to dejected. And I think one of the hardest things that faces us while, is that while looking back on life, perhaps we can process things and try to make sense of them. When we look forward, we simply have no idea what is going to happen. That's the reality of being human. Only God knows what is around the corner for you and I. And for that reason, as Christians, our ability to trust God with the unexpected is perhaps our greatest need, our greatest asset. The Christian life is repeatedly described as a life lived by faith. You and I are people who are supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. We will either trust God or we will find something or someone else to trust. Bob Dylan famously said, you've got to serve somebody. Well, you've got to trust somebody. Who will you and I trust? Our text this morning asks us to examine that question in light of life's reversals and uncertainty by teaching us that when life doesn't make sense, trusting God does. When life doesn't make sense, trusting God does.
We're going to think about that by looking at Exodus chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. I invite you to turn there in your copy of God's Word or in the Pew Bible in front of you there. I've got a simple outline today. You may be helped to write this down. We'll think about number one, a reversal of fortunes. A reversal of fortunes. And then number two, a reason for trust. A reason for trust. And we're going to walk through the text in pieces, but let's think, number one, about a reversal of fortunes, starting in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, and then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. We'll stop there for a moment. The the Hebrew text of Exodus 1-1 begins with an and, actually. Some of your translations may have a now. This happens. It's... It's kind of a reminder here, together with the content of these first seven verses, uh, that this is the continuation of of a book. Uh, Rather than thinking of it as a new book, uh, we should think of the first five books of our Old Testament as as one book written by Moses about how God formed his covenant people. And in many ways, I think it's right to think about the book of Genesis as a preface to the book of Exodus. It's preparing us for what we're going to begin to read about here. It, it covered the creation and the fall of mankind into sin and God's promise of redemption that would begin with Abraham and his descendants. By the end of Genesis, we, we have the children of Jacob, Abraham's grandson, who has been renamed Israel, and he's most emphatically not in the land that God had promised to give to them. Instead, he's in Egypt. Now, remember that they're there in Egypt because they've been saved from famine. Remember what Joseph's brothers intended for evil in selling him into slavery, God intended for good. Um, He has risen, Joseph has, to to become Pharaoh's right-hand man so that he could save the Israelites and the Egyptians from starvation. Along the way, he's enriched Pharaoh fabulously by having these storehouses of grain that they could sell to others. And so while they're immigrants in a land not their own, they are really well treated, right? I mean, they were given a good land to settle in. They've got, they've got favor. Uh, the Egyptians were glad that the Israelites were there. And so when we read in verse 7, remembering that God has really blessed his people as he promised, right? The people of Israel were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Have you ever watched a movie and had the opening scenes of the movie been so idyllic that you start to duck? You know, just picture a family and they're having a picnic in the sunshine and they're eating and people are, everybody's laughing. And the dad says, it's so wonderful to sit in the sunshine here with my family. And you go, okay, what's about to happen? Well, on a literary level, Moses is setting up this great contrast with what is to come. 
Let's continue reading then, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. In China, where we live, there's an important concept called guanxi. Uh, if you translate the word guanxi, it translates as relationship. But, but guanxi, it's, it's actually kind of a commodity. So if you have guanxi in a situation, you can get things done. If you don't have guanxi, you're up a creek without a paddle. Well, the Israelites here, their relational guanxi is gone. The horizontal favor has disappeared. The new pharaoh that has arisen, he simply sees politics and power. His words that we read there in verse 9 and 10, they're designed to rouse the fear of the Egyptians. They're reframing the children of Israel as a threat to them rather than a blessing. This is an old playbook that's used on immigrants many times, many places in history, right? They're too many. They're too mighty for us. They could join our enemies and fight against us. They could escape. It's interesting, on the one hand, he's playing to their fear. But notice there, he's also playing to their greed. I mean, why is it a problem if they escape unless you intend to use them for some kind of personal gain? We see there in verse 11 to 13, his plan works, right? Pharaoh is able to reduce the Israelites to slavery. Notice the the progression of words there in the text to describe their situation getting worse and worse. They have taskmasters. They're afflicted with heavy burdens. They're oppressed. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Made their lives bitter with hard service. And then the repetition there at the end of ruthlessly and slaves. What we see going on is a great reversal here. From privilege... To persecution. And on one level, we, we should notice that this isn't all that strange. I mean, immigrants and ethnic minorities have often been treated this way in history. In modern times, we could go and we could look at uh, the Turks and the Armenians. We could look at the Germans and the Jewish people. We could look at the Afrikaners and the people of color and South Africa, and surely our own country has a a long litany of ethnic persecution from the the slave trade to the treatment of Native Americans to really every wave of immigration from the Irish to the Indonesians. And I think perhaps we should point out here that what is so often missing in our discussions surrounding racism and immigration in this country is the humility that should come from realizing that these problems are endemic to humanity to fallen humanity. History ancient and modern should cause us to lament how quick we are as human beings to view someone else with animosity 
and with envy. But I think two things should stand out to us here as the narrative moves forward. First, in verse 12, notice that God is not mentioned, but we're told that in spite of the persecution, they keep on multiplying. And this should be surprising. As they're being impoverished, as they're being ruthlessly treated, the birth rate should fall, and yet the birth rate continues to rise. The second, more theologically, we should begin to groan along with God's people here. We put ourselves in their shoes, and we think about how strange this would have seemed to them. They didn't do anything wrong, per se, to be suffering this way. They're just following God, and their life went in the toilet. We can picture someone asking, what good is it to be God's people if this is happening to us? Or perhaps for the more mature, how do I walk with God through this kind of hardship and suffering? Before we answer that question, we need to get to the bottom before we look up. So let's finish the chapter. Continue in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So Pharaoh moves here from slavery to infanticide. His oppression is not having the intended effect. He's getting his cities built, so his greed is covered, but his growing fear is not. They continue to multiply. So he moves to another plan. Uh, With the size of the Hebrew nation, I think we should probably understand that Shifra and Pua were the the head of the midwives, perhaps, the the head nurses in in charge of many. His command to them, it's shocking in its barbarian. But remember, it carries the power of the throne with it. So the, the threat of death is hanging over their heads. But we're told they feared God, they disobeyed. The narrative carries us quickly to their summons to appear before Pharaoh. I wonder what you think of their explanation of speedy delivery. Uh, None of the deliveries I've been a part of have been speedy. Um, There's a lot of ink that's been spilled on verse 19 on whether these women are lying or not. Uh, It's not impossible that these are supernaturally fast deliveries. And I get the attraction of that view. Uh, The Proverbs say very clearly that God hates lying lips. God is a God who always speaks the truth. So it would be strange on one level for God to commend a lie. But I think to take the text at face value, we would have to say that they're at least being creatively deceptive. I mean, perhaps they're stepping out at the key moment. I've been in a few situations in China myself uh, where I've been in a situation where I I gave an answer that 
I knew was going to mislead the person, even if it was not technically false. What's very clear is that these women risk their lives because they fear God. And we're told that God rewarded them and gave them families. But notice that last verse. Because the nightmare is not over for the Israelites, is it? Verse 22, the end of the chapter. It's the coup de grace. Having failed twice, Pharaoh now takes it to all the people. Take it into your own hands, the whole nation. Throw any male babies into the Nile River. This has to be one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. But we need to ask the question, why is this text here? And how do we apply it to our lives? I mean, Paul tells us in the New Testament that these events happened as examples to us. They were written down for our instruction. So how are we instructed by what we read here? I think the first thing that we ought not to dodge is that Pharaoh pictures rebellion against God. And that is every single one of us as we start out, right? Before we start identifying with the oppressed, we should identify with the oppressor and realize what, what Pharaoh pictures is the insanity, the increasing insanity of living for ourselves, our own greed, our own fear. Now you may say, well, look, I, I've never done anything like Pharaoh. And to be sure, none of us are as powerful as a Pharaoh. None of us have the ability to amplify our sin in the way that Pharaoh did. But the Bible is very clear, friends, that, that you and I begin in rebellion against God. We are turned inward on ourselves. We have sinned and fallen short of God's glory because we failed to even live in a way that He commands. We are not living in relationship with Him. Friend, if that's you this morning, if, if you were honest and you said, look, I, I just haven't been living for God. I've been living for myself. Uh, this, this text is pressing you to see where that leads. It's pressing you to think about the opportunity that you have to turn from that way of living. I mean, the Christian gospel says that that's not just true of you. It's true of every one of us. We're all spiritual beggars. We have nothing to offer God. We bring only our sin to the table. But what he's made available to us is the opportunity of repentance and trust in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. That, that's the most important thing for you to take away from the, the sermon this morning. You need to be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'd love to talk to you more about that after the service. Come, come see me at the door. See Pastor Mike. Uh, but make sure that you are right with God. Pharaoh pictures the insanity of living otherwise. But secondly, brothers and sisters, when we face the unexplained, the unexpected suffering, the, the undeserved suffering, we're walking in the same shoes as the Israelites, right? Now, to be sure, sometimes suffering comes upon us because of bad choices that we make. But that's not the case here. We are sinners, but we're also sinned against. That's the picture here. And sometimes it's even an evil that's focused on us because we are believers, because we are the people of God. Genesis chapter 3 explained that life after the fall is enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that warfare that exists, that enmity, is going to continue through the entire storyline of the Bible until Satan is finally defeated. And we are in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. 
So animosity may come our way because we are Christians. In that case, we are to entrust ourselves to God and put ourselves in His hands. But it may come to us for all sorts of other reasons. I'm continually struck by the fact that Paul, in his missionary journeys, his his basic teaching to the new churches and new Christians is summed up in Acts 14 as, through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. He's setting their expectations. He's not talking about your best life now. He's not saying that you're going to get healthy and you're going to get happy and you're going to get wealthy. He's saying you will walk with God through tribulation, but there's hope and a future out there for you. We read about God's people enduring suffering, and we experience a fellowship with them in that suffering. But I think the other thing that's useful for us in chapter 1 is just to lament the evil that is very real. It's often aimed at the weakest of the weak, right? It's often aimed at the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, the children. I noticed this week in preparation that many of the sermons on Exodus 1 talk about the great evil of abortion that plagues our land and plagues the world. Read that 42 million Babies are aborted worldwide every year. It's probably much higher than that. Legalized abortion came to the U.S. while I was in my mother's womb in 1973. A a fact that's always sobered it for me. We might read this story and think about it as a horror that, you know, these things are a horror that happened long, long ago in a place far, far away. But it's not, right? And so we lament In China, we read this text and we think about the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Nobody seems much to care that a million people are in concentration camps there right now, uh, including a guy named Tordy who shared Easter dinner at my house a number of years ago. Uh, He's a Uyghur who came to faith in Christ. He went back to Xinjiang and we have never heard from him again. He was baptized before he returned. I think most people in the world are much too busy to notice or care all that much. But for him and for them, we lament. But reversals of fortune happen in this life, don't they? Even for believers. Alec Matir comments on the text this way, We are still the 12-tribe community scattered in the world, subject to the world's pressures, enduring the world's hardships, suffering the world's sorrows. We would like an answer to our question, why? But God does not come down to explain himself. Experiences without explanations. That's what the first chapter of Exodus is all about. Our only comfort is that God comes to us in the day of darkness and lovingly reassures us that it's all right, it's all planned, and it will all be well. But for that, we should consider our second point, a reason to trust. Let's pick up the text in chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. 
she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. A reason to trust. In the midst of the horror of ethnic cleansing, genocide, whatever you want to call it, we're told here about a marriage, conception of a child, and the birth of a son. And we see the mom's actions upon seeing the child. Of course, she decides to exercise civil disobedience and hide the child. In the New Testament, we have two different verses that comment on her action here. So, one in Hebrews 11, 23, where it says that the parents together hid the child for three months by faith. So they did it trusting God. And there's a because. Because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now I've thought long and hard about the the statement that the child is beautiful. As best as I can understand, no parents think their child at birth is ugly. I mean, there's a bit of dishonesty there because when they come out, it's a bit of a mess, right? Um, But I I don't think what the text is saying here is that they they took a look at Moses and said, ah, it looks pretty good, let's keep it. I don't think that's the idea here. In Stephen's speech in Acts 7, he says that when Moses was born, he was beautiful in God's sight. So in some sense, Moses was marked out with special blessing that perhaps the parents had insight into. I think we can easily imagine Moses' parents in some degree of anxiety and fear as the due date approached, wondering if it would be a boy, wondering what would happen. But when they lay eyes on their son, the natural love of a parent combined with God-given faith to fuel the actions that follow. So they hide him for as long as they can and come what may. Now, we don't know what level of neighbors turning in neighbors uh, would have existed, but you can't hide forever. It's interesting with what follows that the command was to throw the babies into the Nile. Uh, It seems that Moses' mother decides sort of to technically follow that, to obey that sort of. But perhaps we should see here an implicit challenge to the, the Egyptian river god over against the one true and living god. I think we should see her as trusting God with the outcome. Lots of things could turn over a basket in the water, drown the baby, or in a short time the baby would die of exposure. But she's also thinking practically because she puts the basket in the reeds where it might be kept close to the shore and the place where either people come down to do their washing or to bathe. The word here for basket, it's the same word for Noah's ark. It's only used here and there, the word ark. Like Noah's Ark, it's the hope of rescue from the floodwaters of death. There's no question she's setting it off by faith, trusting in the providence and the salvation of God. And just as Abraham of old raised the knife to kill his son, trusting that God would raise the dead, she cast her son into the river to whatever would come from the good hand of God. And the exquisite, the meticulous sovereignty of God, it's Pharaoh's daughter who comes and finds the baby. Notice that the crying that could have been the death of Moses a little earlier is the cause of his 
salvation in a sense here. She sees the crying baby. She takes pity on the baby. She's not like her father. Notice also the swift courage of Miriam, Moses' sister, who's watching and who runs up and finds her voice to act, ask this most powerful of women if she should find a nurse for her. So we end up here with Moses' mom at the end of the narrative holding her beloved child, the Redeemer of Israel, who's been adopted into the very family of the one who tried to kill him. Do you think Moses had fun writing this down? But what we have here, friends, is reasons to trust God in troubled times, in times of hardship in our life. Why should you and I trust God in the midst of suffering? I want us to think about three reasons. Number one, God is at work even when we can't see it. Even when you and I can't see it, God is at work. Part of the problem when you and I face suffering is that we can't see the big picture. I don't think the sufferers in this story could either. They couldn't see how God was working to form a nation. They couldn't see the fact that if they were left just prosperous and happy and unpersecuted, they probably would have just assimilated with the rest of Egyptian culture. God is forming the nation through hardship here. And they couldn't see how these things that are intended for evil are intended by God for good. To bring about raising the Redeemer in the house of Pharaoh where he would get the education and, and even the relationships that are going to be essential to what he has to do to be God's instrument. That's true in our lives, friends. I mean, I, when I think about this, I, I think about the cultural revolution that I talked about in the, the introduction. How that time of incredible suffering when the Chinese church couldn't gather usually more than 10 people without great risk of being found out. It was a time of terrible persecution. It is what paved the way for the great spiritual awakening the last 30 or 40 years. There's no doubt about that. When Deng Xiaoping opened China to the West in the early 1980s, the first people that went back assumed they were going to find a dead church. They assumed that they were going to find that the work of 100 years of missions had all come to naught. Instead of an estimated million believers had become 6 million believers through hardship, through suffering. Now, I'll confess that it's really hard to believe this on a personal level. Megan and I look back at a life in China that seems farther and farther away, and, and we ask ourselves, why, why cancer? Why the coronavirus? Why in a time of great fruitfulness of ministry, when everything's going well, would this happen? Well, this is what I need to remember. Friends, this is what you need to remember in the midst of whatever trial you are facing. Friend, do you believe that God is at work even when you don't see it? Even when you don't understand? Do you believe that God can and that God cares? There's an intersection of His glory, His plan and what He's doing in the world and your good. Those things will always come together. Do you believe that this morning? God is at work even when you can't see it. Secondly, even more specifically, God brings about great good through tested faith. God brings about great good through tested faith, by testing our faith. There's a delicious irony in the text here. You know, we've got two sides here. Pharaoh holds all the power. He's got all the cards. On one side, he's got royal power. 
He's got popular power. And even in his mind, he's got the power of the, the gods of Egypt and the, the, the god of the Nile River that's going to swallow up the Jews. And his intent, his strategy, is to kill the boys. Why? Well, they're going to grow up, and in 20 years, they're an army, right? So, so, so let's kill the boys. He's focused on the strength and power of man. But who foils his plot? Who takes their stand on the other side against him? Five women. Shifra, Pua, Moses' mom, Miriam, and his own daughter. That, 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 that's that's the, the battle here. And it's a beautiful picture of how God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. These women who trust him. Now, I couldn't help but think about this. When, when I watch movies with my daughters, from Disney to Marvel, we, we just roll eyes these days. Because it's like enough with the girl power already. All right? we, we get it. It's an interesting plot line. If, if the girl knows how to do karate and can fight her way through 10 boys. I mean, it's just kind of surprising. It's interesting. I get into it sometime, but enough already in culture, all right? But that's not how these women overcome here, is it? They don't punch their way to victory. They just trust God. What is it? It's their theological convictions. Girls, sisters in Christ, do you want something to aspire to? Look at the strength of these women. It's in what they believe about their faithful God. That's what gives them backbone. Shifra and Pua, they disobey at risk to their lives. And oh, by the way, the, the hint in the text about who matters, we don't know which Pharaoh it was. Got a lot of Pharaohs in history. We don't know. No name here. He's given no name in the text. But we remember Shifra and Pua. That's kind of a literary hint there. Moses' mom, she's not afraid of the king's edict, we're told. Miriam is right there on the spot. And Pharaoh's daughter herself, I don't, I don't assume that she's a believer at this point anyway, but she knows enough to listen to the voice of conscience and say, nope, I'm not, I'm not going to obey dad on this one. Let's adopt the boy. But friends, for all of us, let's look and see that the testing of our faith brings about good fruit. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. That, that bully at school, that supervisor that seems to have it out for you, the health challenge that you just found out about, a pandemic that messes up our plans for ministry. What does James say in the New Testament? The testing of our faith brings about perseverance. And perseverance has to finish its work. If you and I are going to be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. We read about these women and we are encouraged and reminded that God brings about great good in us and through us by the exercise of our faith in difficult times by the grace of God. But there's a third lesson here. Third and finally, God is there in the midst of our suffering. Through much of this text, we're left to put ourselves in the position of the sufferers. The Israelites whose fortunes have been reversed and they're suffering under the burdens of slavery. Pregnant parents who live in fear of what's going to happen if it's a boy. And the believers who wonder to themselves, what is going on? Is God still with us? Where is God? Exodus 2.23 reads this way. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. 
Isn't that beautiful? He heard. He remembered. He saw. He knew. He was there the whole time with them. We can see that in this story, not just because we know the story of the book of Exodus, not just because we know that Moses is being rescued from Pharaoh so that he can grow up and deliver the people from slavery in Egypt. You and I know that because we know the story of the Bible. We know that this story points to the birth of another baby boy. Jesus Christ, God with us, who was rescued, as we read earlier, from another homicidal ruler, from Herod who also tried to kill the boys, and who grew up, Jesus did, to deliver us from slavery to sin and death. He's called Emmanuel because He is God with us. He stepped into our world. He walked in our shoes. He he lived the life that you and I should have lived so that He could then die the substitutionary death on a cross that you and I deserve to die. That is why the Christian can uniquely know that God is not far off in suffering. He's there in the middle of it. Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, points out that while suffering is a reality for people in any worldview, Christianity is the only faith where God himself enters the suffering. He says this, suffering can refine us rather than destroy us, because God himself walks with us in the fire. So let's believe that this morning, that God is at work even when we can't see it, that he's bringing about great good in and through us, even in suffering, and that because of what we've seen of Jesus and the cross, he is there with us in our suffering. So brothers and sisters, I don't know what you may be facing this morning, Let me encourage you to focus on the bigger picture of what God is doing. We said that when life doesn't make sense, trusting God does. He has shown himself to be faithful to his people in Jesus Christ. We'll close with the words of Peter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let's pray.